Hello and welcome to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this program, the CFRC Campus News Team welcomes new guests from the Queen's University community and covers news, issues, upcoming and recent events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's University students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dida Jansen. In recent Queen's University news, homecoming weekend occurred with thousands of Queen's University alumni visiting campus, local businesses, and attending the Gales versus Ottawa GG's homecoming game at Richardson Stadium with the Gales prevailing 12-8 over Ottawa. Erica Singh, CFRC Campus News Liaison, will have more on homecoming news in a few moments. In other recent campus news, the Queen's Gazette has unveiled a new dynamic redesign of its news site that highlights important university news with enhanced accessible desktop and mobile experience. The new Queen's Gazette features a reimagined front page featuring topic selections highlighting major research stories and priority university initiatives, in addition to important campus and community news. There's also a new In the Media section that highlights high-profile media appearances of Queen's research experts and administrative leaders, alongside showcase media stories of interest about the university itself. With the new design, all Queen's staff and faculty will continue to receive the latest stories from the site in their Gazette email, arriving in their inboxes three times weekly. In other campus news, James Peebles, the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics laureate, visited Queen's University earlier this month. He met with colleagues and collaborators at the Arthur B. Macdonald Canadian Astroparticle Physics Research Institute and delivered a lecture entitled Our Expanding Universe to a Sold-Out Public Audience. The talk went into the intricacies of our cosmos, shedding light on how we come to understand the universe and our place within it. Further in campus news, Thrive Week on campus runs October 30th through November 3rd with a focus on compassion. Members of the Queen's community are encouraged to take part in a series of in-person and virtual events including a Learn to Listen workshop, another on practical strategies to maintain body movement and exercise routines, another on happiness, resiliency and emotional self-regulation, a honey tasting hosted by the Queen's Apiary, a workshop on emotional intelligence, a Richardson Stadium tour, and a keynote address by Dr. Jacoba Lilius on compassion in our lives. Queen's staff and faculty can also enjoy free coffee, tea, and hot chocolate at one of the university's participating food outlets on November 3rd. Registration for all events is available on the Queen's Gazette website. Finally, Queen's United Way has reached 61% of its annual fundraising goal, having raised $297,000 in its effort to raise funds for the United Way KFLNA's $3.8 million goal. Donors to Queen's United Way provide essential funds to programs that advance university goals, including no poverty, zero hunger, gender equality, and quality of education in the community. Visit the Queen's United Way site to join the campaign and donate. And don't forget CFRC 101.9 FM's annual funding drive launches November 1st through December 31st with a $25,000 goal for our station. Donors can give to CFRC through our website at cfrc.ca and receive either a tax receipt if they donate through Queen's or choose from a range of gifts available from local businesses. CFRC will also be hosting a movie night at the Screening Room, a DJ dance party at the Grad Club, and also a games night at Minotaur, events that are open to the public. Support CFRC's operations and news programming. Please make a donation. And now over to Erica Singh, Campus News Liaison, with more in campus and student news.
Thank you! Hello, my name is Erica Singh, and here is a quick rundown of your homecoming weekend. CFRC 101.9, among with many campus groups, welcomed alumni home over homecoming weekend. CFRC DJed at Grant Hall and the Fall Harvest Festival, welcomed many visitors during the station's two open house events, undertook its annual tradition of live broadcasting the homecoming game, and also greeted and chatted with hundreds of alumni at Grant Hall, including a group of CFRC alumni. Here is a short clip about their experience. In 1969, we thought we signed up for the club, right? And we did training, and I did the technical stuff. The end. Also during homecoming weekend, City Bylaw continued their collaboration with Kingston Police to manage unsanctioned gatherings in the University District. On Saturday, October 21st, a nuisance party was declared on Aberdeen Street from Johnson to Earl. Traffic was blocked and attendees were directed to disperse. Thankfully, the gathering was successfully cleared and the nuisance party declaration was lifted at 4 p.m. Bylaw enforcement and the Kingston police handed out fines totaling over $88,000, ranging from $200 to $2,000. Although many Queen students felt as though they were unfairly targeted by the police and expressed that they were not told to clear the area before fines were handed out. The University District Safety Initiative will remain in effect until November 1st at 12 a.m. Residents are encouraged to learn more about the municipal measures on the City of Kingston's website to discourage unsanctioned gatherings and high-risk behaviors. While the University District Safety Initiative is set to end on November 1st, the police have made it clear that they will still be present in the university area should the need arise. That's all from me today. Stay tuned for some more Campus Beat coverage. Thank you, Erica, and welcome back, everyone. In our next segment, we're pleased to present conversations with three of this year's Queen's University Distinguished Award recipients. This year, Chris Berga, Elizabeth Jane Arrington, Anita Lister, Elspeth Murray, Brenda Reed, and Colette Steer are being recognized for making Queen's University a better place through their extraordinary contributions. Distinguished Service Award recipients are selected by the University Council Executive Committee. The Distinguished Service Award recognizes exemplary service to the university over an extended period of time. Executive Committee Vice Chair Marcus Wong, ArtsI03, said that they were so inspired by the amazing work and contributions of this year's Distinguished Service Award recipients and that they have often said that Queen's is not just my university or your university, it's actually our university. And so it is only through our combined efforts that Queen's will continue to be a place where excellence lives, they said. The Distinguished Service Award Ceremony and Reception will be held on Friday, November 3rd from 5.30 to 7.30 at the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts, and tickets are available through the Queen's University Alumni website, and the Isabel will also stream the event. We had the opportunity to catch up with three of this year's winners, Chris Berga, Elizabeth Jane Arrington, and Colette Steer. In this next segment, we chat with Chris Berga, a trusted associate of five Queen's University principals since 1978 who has provided critical support to senior leadership and has played an integral role in a multitude of operations. Her nominators call her a shining example of service, loyalty, integrity, commitment, and dedication to the betterment of Queen's University. So 
So, Chris, tell us a little bit about your role supporting management of the principal's office and its team at Queen's University over your long career. Yes, it's uh, my my term in the principal's office was uh, was quite quite long and very enjoyable. Um, I had various roles, but uh, the last position that I held was the assistant director uh, for administration and uh, finance, finance and administration, I should say. Um, so it was basically anything to do with the the finances, the budget, um, some of the uh, student initiative funding, um, HR work, uh, some committee work. So it was, yeah, it 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 varied um, from time to time, but basically it was the uh, financial management. Awesome. And you've served with five Queen's University principals, as I understand. I'd like to hear a little bit more about keeping the ship sailing smoothly with your team between transitions between so many people with their own visions of things, and, and especially where new projects and budgets are also on the horizon. Tell us a little bit about that transition time and, and adjustments and, and keeping things, things rolling smoothly. Well, um, I guess the, the transitions for the most part uh, always went quite smoothly. I mean, we've always had um, a fantastic team, uh, which that's, you know, obviously that's what you need. Everybody has uh, a role and uh, we also had a lot of cross knowledge so that, um, you know, if we needed extra extra help in one area or a different expertise because of a certain project, we could always count on, you know, our, our colleagues to be there for us. And um, yeah, a lot of times uh, it, it turned out to be kind of a fun activity. I know various times when one of the principals would be heading off to a very major international trip. You know, there's a lot of legwork involved, a lot of planning. Um, and there was, you know, in the early days, there was a lot of late evenings that we all kind of came together, even though it wasn't necessarily in our role. Um, we just were there to pitch in and and uh, see him or her off on uh, in the in the best possible light. Indeed. And and I'd like to dig in a little bit more because behind the scenes, some of us don't on the outside of the principal's office don't really understand a lot about the inner workings of what actually happens in the office of the principal. It's not just the principal. There is a whole team of people involved in logistics for making everything coming out of the principal's office actually work. Tell us a little bit more about some of the day to day. Um, well, again, it's you know, it changes, uh, it would change day to day. Um, you have to, you have to be able to adapt very quickly to whatever climate, whatever um, event might be happening, um, good or bad. Uh, so it may require, you know, just rethinking, recalibrating whatever plans any one of the team might have had. Mm -hmm. um, obviously not everybody was involved with every activity for the most part you know as I said we had our individual roles um, but we always tried to keep abreast of what 
our colleagues were doing. And, and so you had some kind of idea uh, what was happening. Um, I mean, the day-to-day -day is probably no different than, than most offices, administrative offices on campus. You have deadlines, you have meetings to set up. Um, there's the committee work at various times uh, can be quite involved. Uh, depending on you know what was what was going on, um, senior searches. So yes, um, it changes daily or change <laughs> daily. Uh, and it, but indeed, you 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 led uh, and worked with the executive director uh, in concert to lead a pretty large team of people to uh, facilitate all manner of things, including. Uh, uh, budgetary things for projects, finances for the uh, the office itself, but also uh, supervising communications and speech writing and making sure that the principal, whichever principal <laughs> that may have been over uh, the 45 years of your career, that they were uh, at places when they needed to be and were well prepared for everything that they needed to do. So you had this huge team and a network of folks and uh, working in particular um, areas of the principal's office. But as a team and as a team leader, what would you say are some of your greatest accomplishments and achievements in your in your view? Uh, well, obviously, the executive director and then, you know, the more recently, the the chief of staff, I mean, they had the the greater role. Um, and, and it's, you know, for the most part, it is up to them to execute the long-term plan and, and the short-term plan. I mean, my role, um, I managed for a while, for a number of years, uh, a number of the staff. And so anytime you're working with great people and have the opportunity to further their career, be um uh, take a role in advancing their professional career, their educational career is is very fulfilling. I mean, you get to you get to spend a lot of time with um, with anyone that you that you supervise, and just seeing them succeed and being able to look back at the teams that you had and what you were able to accomplish is is so satisfying and and you know it was it was a great part of the role that i had when i was in that role i mean i the principal's office time was 22 years prior to that i i was not in a management role okay. and i wasn't i wasn't in a management role the full time of of my career in the principal's office of course but uh yeah, it, it's anytime you work with closely with uh, great people, it's just it's very satisfying and it's it's very humbling and it they teach you as much as you know you can offer them. So it's um, yeah, it's makes for a very enjoyable work life. Wonderful. Now, from the nomination letters, a couple of principals emeritus spoke of, of you as the glue that held the principal's office together and of their reliance on you almost in totality to really take care of business. 
I'd like to learn from you, Chris, that, uh, what really drove your commitment to providing such exceptional service, not only to your principal, but also to your team as a whole, as a, as a leader and a mentor? Well, I don't think there was any formal thought process to set out to do this. I mean, your, your roles, your, the learning in different positions provide a knowledge. I had a lot of, a bit of knowledge about a lot of things rather than, you know, uh, being an expert in one specific thing um, from the various roles that I held at Queen's. Um, obviously, being at the university for such a long time and being in the principal's office for a long time, you, you have a lot of memory. You have a lot of um, history with what has happened before and you know that's that's been I think um, an asset throughout the years and it offers I think and hope uh, some consistency in in having that that knowledge carry through no matter who was you know leading the ship um, and other staff come and go so it's uh, it's nice it was I think um, very helpful to have that knowledge throughout the years that I could share when necessary. Wonderful. And now uh, I understand you've recently retired or or, or are about to retire. Uh, Chris, what did you love most about your job? Uh, yes, I retired at the end of April. Um, so what did I enjoy the most about my job? I, I think I think it has to be the people. I mean, your your job, your job is a job, but the people that you work with enhance every single day, everything that you do. And I, you know, throughout my whole career at the university, I, I've been so blessed with working with just the best people. And that goes a long way to job satisfaction and you know what you have to face every day knowing that you know it's it's going to be made a lot better with the uh, the colleagues that you get to call you know friends and coworkers and even the people that are outside of your immediate office i mean they, yeah you just there's so many great people out there that that i've been so fortunate enough to work with and students. In my early days, I was working with a lot of students. So, uh, whether it's you know staff, faculty, students, they all they all are a part of that. Um, yeah, the the joy of of my time at Queens. Fantastic. And now, uh, last question. So, when you learned uh, that you were being uh, lauded with a Distinguished Service Award. What were your thoughts when you first learned you were nominated and, and received this award? Um, well, I was completely in shock. Um, it was quite quite overwhelming. Um, never, never would have dreamt to have been given this incredible honor. Um, it, it still is a little bit hard to completely grasp uh, that I, I will be in the company of so many, you know, wonderful, incredible, talented people. So I'm, I'm, I'm extremely 
grateful and um but yes i'm it's it's a little little overwhelming <laughs> Thank you so much, folks. We've been chatting with Chris Berga all about uh, their time at Queen's University uh, in the office of the principal and uh, the recent awarding of the Distinguished Service Award. Thanks, Chris, for joining us on the air. Thank you. We also chatted with Dr. Elizabeth Jane Arrington, a professor in the Department of History since 1996. Arrington, known affectionately by many as Dr. E, is an inspiring academic leader whose nominators cited the many enduring contributions to graduate supervision, departmental and university service, pioneering work in community engagement, pathbreaking scholarship, and influence on the academy as a whole. So welcome, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us today. So Jane, tell us about yourself and your areas of research interest, teaching and graduate supervision in the Department of History here at Queen's University. So I have been a member of the Department of History for more than 25 years now. Um, at one point, for in fact, quite a while, I was also a full-time member of the History Department in the Faculty of Arts at, at the Royal Military College. So at Queen's, all I do is graduate work. I'm very, very fortunate, like seriously fortunate. Um, I teach in the area of colonial North America, and it's a course, I teach it every year. It's a core, it's sort of a you know two-term course or two courses over, over two terms um, that deals with social, cultural, gender, those kind of issues in the establishment and, and sort of development of colonial societies in North America. Uh, we branch out, so it, it, but it's actually very broadly defined. Today, I'm just finishing up, finally making choices about what to go into my syllabus, um, because as always, there's way too much to include relative to what time we've got. Um, I've got a great class, class this year. I'm very, really quite tickled, but I've always had great classes. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And my own writing goes on deals with issues about women and gender and culture in, in the colonial 19th century colonial period. Um, and right now I'm working on, I'm working on a late 19th century project about what it would like, what it was like to be a, a cadet at RMC in the first few years, looking at issues of masculinity and the attempts to create a particular kind of young man and what that meant. Interesting, interesting. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of your particular research area within the discipline of history itself, especially now that we're looking at things uh, through new lenses related to EDII. How how have things evolved for you? So I started off, I came back to Queens to do an MA in what I thought was going to be 20th century history. And I ran into uh, George Rollick, who I thoroughly enjoyed his, his seminar in colonial North America, and I ended up doing colonial North American history. Um, and the, partly because the, the research is, was it the writing, the literature is so rich, just phenomenally rich. And it's a world where it's not our world, and yet at the same time, there are things that resonate with our world. Um, and it's really quite fascinating how that happens. My own work has evolved from what had been sort of intellectual history, which is what became the first book, to very much more gender, um, colonial and, and cultural history. Uh, and in part, that's just because of where my own personal interests lay. 
So the second book ended up talking about women uh, and women and their work and what they did in the colonial period. And then at the time I was writing that, I was kept running into these notices about information wanted from women looking for their husbands or their brothers or their fathers in the North America, in North America, having arrived sort of and sitting on the, the docks of Kingston or sitting in the docks of, of York, what became Toronto, looking for folks uh, suddenly having arrived and not knowing where they're going. And so that, that sort of inspired the third book. And then the current project, which I'm very surprised I'm working on, because uh, I never thought I would go back to it, um, is a rise of, of a diary, a one-year diary from a young cadet who arrived in Kingston in 1876. And it is just a wonderful, wonderful entry into ideas of masculinity and where that fits and whiteness and Britishness all within a still colonial context in Canada. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of how things evolved. It's It's more by good luck than good grace i'll tell you <laughs> well with with these uh with these in mind then if we can uh look into um the evolution of your own teaching and supervision i understand that you've had over 40 master students and approximately 2021 phd candidates under your supervision uh at least at queen's university uh, how has your teaching also evolved over the last few decades Teaching is such a blast. It is just great fun. It really <laughs> is. Um, I started teaching, I, I guess I became enamored by teaching because I taught high school for four years before I came back to do an MA. Um, hmm. And I, when I first went in, it, well, let's go back a step. If When I was doing an undergraduate, I would not have been caught dead teaching. Uh, I just, it would not have been something that I could have imagined doing. And then I went to teacher's college after a very sort of scattered academic career as an undergraduate. Um, and it was fun. Uh, and I then was encouraged, not encouraged, I was then, um, what's the word I want, offered the position uh, to teach in Northern Ontario. And I taught in Red Lake for four years. And that's where I discovered how much I really love teaching. Initially, I was terrified of going into a classroom of high school students. Um, but discovered that they were on the whole pretty generous and I was a novelty single woman going into a northern Ontario mining town. You know, they didn't quite know what to do with me anyway. Um, and then I came back to do the MA and began to teach at the university level um, and was lucky enough to get a position at RMC where classes are very small and you get students from across the country. So if you're a Canadianist in any way, it's a wonderful opportunity to get folks to talk to each other about their understanding of the nation and what that meant, because it is so varied and really just a delight. But teaching graduate students is wonderful because I learn more than they do. Um, I'm always learning new things. I've spent the last month, I guess, going through literature for the of the last two years. I've been on sabbatical for a year. And I'm coming back. And the last month of that sabbatical, I spent time going through journals uh, and looking at and just being astounded by the wonderful literature that's there. And then when you have a small graduate class, you become a community in, in that sense. And when you become a community and people are comfortable with each other, they are able to engage with each other. They don't have to always agree because they don't always agree, which is just fine, but they're able to listen and hear as well as speak. So it's pretty wonderful. 
Fantastic. And now, Jane, I wonder if we can hear a little bit more about some of the work that you have done to ultimately support graduate student success, not only as a, a graduate supervisor uh, for individual students, but also including the work that you've done, for example, on the MA thesis working group and, and professional development courses within the Department of History. I, I'd like to hear more about what issues these pro particular projects in recent years have been addressing for students and uh, and also departmental curricula within the discipline overall well that's interesting i i don't quite know what i would call for work i in addition to teaching the graduate course i also am back to running an ma workshop and mm -hmm. i may workshops for students who are working on their ma theses one of the things that happens to students who are in, in their second year of their ma or even later on doing their PhD is that it can be a very lonely process. They're no longer in class. They no longer have an automatic cohort of people that they see regularly every week or a couple of times a week. And so one of the things that the MA workshop did was provide folks with a continuing sense of community. And for me, it's wonderful because I get to hear and, and learn about all sorts of different research topics, which are way outside mine because the, the research topics are really, really, really broad. Um, and so that, I guess, would be one of the things that, that I would be involved in. Um, I also like having students for dinner. And so twice a year, at least until COVID came, we would have potlucks here. And potlucks involved off providing, you no, know, potlucks were just an occasion for all of us to get together, for senior graduate students to get together with the current MA class or graduate class uh, with their partners friends that were, would arrive and we would have an evening of laughter and conversation and just hanging out and we would do that kind of thing. That sounds like an uh, an excellent opportunity for students not only to engage with, uh, with their peers, uh, regardless of their uh, particular area of study, but what a great way for folks to exchange ideas, for example, uh, in a in a formal setting in terms of the workshops, but a less formal setting as well. So here's what I'm working on. What do you think? <laughs> I think was a, maybe somebody has a, come across some really great article that actually the methodology in here might be really useful for what you're working on. You know what I mean? And you get those kind of conversations at potlucks, but you also get conversations about, oh, I've got to move, or, you know, the dog is doing X, or... Did you see what's going on in downtown Kingston? Yeah. So it, it, it creates a community. Of Absolutely. So yes, there's opportunities for also the social aspects too, and, and yeah. being able to just have folks to uh, be friends with. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you're building those environments uh, for graduate students in the history department where uh, maybe that had uh, not existed uh, quite so well before. Yeah. It, it may well have existed. Um, I actually don't know whether it existed or not. I'm only a, a one-third member of the history department, right? Though I'm fully tenured, I'm only one-third. So so I don't really stay in touch with what's going on in the undergraduate side. Right. So, um, of course, to Jane, uh, I know, <laughs> having spent some time in the history department as well, uh, that you are very well known amongst your colleagues and past and present graduate students as the beloved Dr. E. <laughs> now, also as a, a, a past recipient of the SGS's Graduate Supervision Award, 
What ultimately drives or inspires you to mentor student success? Why do you care so much? I have no idea why I care so much. Um, because they're fascinating folks, and they're fascinating folks who I was very fortunate to have good mentors. And I think that that's just part of the game. You know, you just, you do it. I mean, and, and partly it's, it's part of, of being engaged in a community. Right. And when you're engaged in a community, you just help that community continue to function and grow and develop and and nurture. That's all. Awesome. And now, uh, can you do you have any particular individuals in mind for folks that you've mentored in the past who now are amongst your colleagues? And these are folks that you still continue to work with and, and converse with. Perhaps you're trading ideas. They might be off at some other university or um, something. Yeah. What's wonderful are the and so, and you certainly do have that um, and and it's quite wonderful and you, when you get to my age you're also finding colleagues who are now more than well established and, and incredibly successful in their own field but you've also got it's wonderful is to watch students who graduate and even those who don't in the end finish go off and find all sorts of other things to do uh, whether it's working for Parks Canada I have a student right now former student very successful former student working for the TTC doing educational work um, mm. in Toronto. Uh, and so you have folks doing it all, just a host of, 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 of work. And uh, it's wonderful to hear from them and to uh, and those I stay in touch with. And, and with that in mind too, because uh, as you are likely intimately aware, many uh, folks that uh, do graduate degrees in history do not go on to academic careers, uh, uh, given that most uh, universities are hiring adjuncts. It's hard to make a, a salary, a living wage as an adjunct professor for a sustained period of time. So people do move on to other careers. Tell us about some of the evolution in in that area of the discipline and why, you know, some of the work that uh, folks that are doing in the department that are under your own supervision, some of them go on to academia, but some of them are branching out elsewhere. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the discipline and some of the great things people learn in history, doing history, but then are able to take it elsewhere. And so one of the things that anybody who is doing MA, not so much, but a PhD, you must always, they must always be conscious. So it's hard to, for them to keep this in mind. But the chances of they ending up where I am are nil at this point. Um, it's a, and, and it's not a question of their ability. It's not a question of anything else. It's just a question of blind luck and the, and the state of, of universities today. Mm -hmm. um, the, it, you know, the, the competition is not just fierce, but it's, um sort of beyond understanding i think uh, and so for these folks it's also what's wonderful is that sgs is doing so many of their courses to provide opportunities for students to develop other skills uh, but it's also encouraging students to continue to be involved in the community when they're out as well as doing discipline you know work within the discipline it's encouraging folks to see themselves in positions where they are doing a phd because they can afford it they have they're willing to, to, to put the time into it. They're fascinated by their topic because, as you know, it can be a long process uh, just to get it done. But there is a, sense, a huge sense of satisfaction that comes from that. Mm -hmm. But then they're willing to turn around and say, all right, I've got research skills. I've got communication skills of all levels, including speaking, uh, being able to 
uh, take material and synthesize it, as well as to develop and analyze it, um, and take those skills into all sorts of other areas, which are incredibly, can, can themselves be incredibly satisfying. And so I think it's just very important for them. What's wonderful is the number of students who continue to do some kind of research, even though they're not, quote, in the field. Uh, they've learned really valuable skills for that. Amazing. And now, Jane, having learned about your nomination and ultimate receipt of the Distinguished Service Award, how did you respond when you learned? I, I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know it existed until I <clears throat> was told that I had received it. Um, and I am so grateful to those who put my name forward. Um, was very surprised. Certainly, I don't think that I had done any kind of distinguished service. Uh, certainly not enough to merit this. And so I am very, very fortunate, a very lucky girl. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jane, for joining us here on CFRC. Congratulations on your Distinguished Service Award. And thank you so much for giving us some insights into uh, the evolution of the discipline of history and teaching history. It's fantastic to hear from you. Thank you very much. And Dinah, it was great to talk to you. We also caught up with a third Distinguished Service Award winner, Colette Steer, Manager Graduate Experience for the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs. Steer's roles have included recruiter, event innovator, communications expert, member of the Board of Trustees, and a tireless name reader at convocation ceremonies. Involved in all aspects of the graduate student experience at Queen's University, Steer's nominators have extensively lauded her work to ensure every opportunity for the success of each graduate student at Queen's. Okay, so thank you very much for joining us, Colette, here on CFRC's Campus Beat. It's a real pleasure chatting with you today. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. It's a bit strange being on the other end of the the microphone, so to speak, but uh, it's great to be here. So thank you. Thank you so much. Now, Colette, tell us a little bit about your role in the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs. Well, it's a bit of a mismatch, mismatch really. I mean, people... People often ask me that. It started off just purely as recruitment, but over the years it's expanded to include orientation and various events, special events like receptions and what and research showcases, as well as professional development. So it's it's a bit of a catch-all kind of program, I would say. But overall, they're trying what we're trying to do in this position is see, you know, what is the student experience from first contact. All the way through to when they then they cross the cross the stage and graduate. So, like I said, a bit of a catch-all. Oh wow! So, what drives your passion to play all the roles that you actually do play to support <laughs> student success? Not only bring the students to the Queen's graduate and postdoctoral programs, but but also see them through and make sure that they succeed. What drives your passion for this? Well, I could say it's because I'm Australian, but no, that's not the reason um, for my passion. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I think why I've enjoyed my job and stayed in it for so long is because I do have the opportunity to meet the students. And that's what drives me, because if I can play my part in their success, or even just a small part in their success, that's a real boost for me. Um, and, you know, as I'm going through the various programming and meeting them at different times during their degree, I can ask them questions, you know, how are you going here? What did you find out about, you know, how did you find out about that? What do you think is missing? 
all those sorts of things. But I can't do that sitting behind a desk. So running events and workshops, that gives me a chance to meet the students and I can get a much better um, much better understanding of what they're feeling at that particular point in time. And, you know, are we doing what we need to do? So I guess in terms of the passion is seeing the students, seeing how they're going, what can I do to sort of help a little bit along that journey? And that's what drives me. And and I have to say, as somebody who has done graduate studies at Queen's University and had the benefit of reading your very informative newsletters, <laughs> that every graduate and postdoctor graduate student should read, uh, but also the the uh, extremely useful programming that is coming out to help folks succeed, uh, whether they be uh, varying workshops. Uh, in particular, uh, I would have to remark that thesis boot camp is probably the greatest thing. I love doing happened. those writing camps. Love it. <laughs> Everybody and the thesis retreats. I Yeah, I have to say that some of your nominators also spoke of your leadership, too, not only in terms of just ensuring student success, but in your collaborative efforts as well. Like the many programs that you run, you also run these in concert with so many other individuals and units at the university. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about your leadership and collaborative efforts and, and your keen desire to work with others to um, bring the services and programs that you do. Give us some examples of your collaborative success. Well, oh, thank you. I mean, this job, I couldn't do this job without the support of a lot of different departments on campus. We, I mean, the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs is not a big um, office. And so we, we rely on our colleagues throughout the university to help us. And for instance, you know, Division of Student Affairs, a lot of people think, oh, it's just for undergrads. It's not. It's for grad students, too. So they have a lot of departments that support grad students and do programming specifically for grad students. So our part there is, first of all, to alert them to what's available um, and, and all their options that they've got. But also, you know, is, are there certain areas that we want to sort of highlight more and help promote a little bit more? So, for instance, student academic success services absolutely brilliant we've collaborated with them for many many years in fact from day one of our very first dissertation boot camp we've collaborated with them so they come in and do one-on-one -on -one consultations and workshops and we provide the facilities and the food refreshments and ref and food and other sort of supports along the way but that wouldn't have been successful without their cooperation. And of course, that's been extended to not just dissertation boot camp, but the lake shift as well, which is a sleepaway one. So that's one example with SAS. Then, of course, career services, they have numerous programs. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, you don't wait to use career services at the end to the end. You can start using them as soon as you get started in, in your degree. So again, highlighting what they're doing. What can we do to collaborate um, on certain programs that they have? Then I guess, um, you know, the various support groups there, Banry, Quick, Yellow House, 4D, whenever they're doing programming, we help each other to, to promote what we're doing. Or I go to them and say, look, I've got this, this thing. Would you be like to be a part of athletics and recreation? We're doing something coming up. You know, we're, we're working with them. Our PA day writing camps. We work with athletics mm -hmm. to give to give those uh, students who have kids 
cheaper access to some of the athletic camps during a PA day. So that's a collaboration. And then, of course, outside student affairs, we have groups like the Centre for Teaching and Learning, which we know if any, any of our students are going to be a TA or a teaching fellow, well, which is more likely they're all going to be that at some stage, they need some support. So Centre for Teaching and Learning have a, has a lot of great program, both for faculty, students and postdocs, again, making people aware of it. And let's pull some out that we can sort of highlight more. Mm-hmm. Um, such as the teaching dossier or how to get started as a as a TA. So you know we can't we can't do this programming and um, show our students what's available without their support. So mm. those collaborations and relationships have been crucial to um, the suite of programming that we're able to offer. Can't do it without them. And you are not a, necessarily a one-woman team <laughs> in this regard, but uh, you also have some supports and collaborations directly within your, your own unit as well. So, yeah, goodness yeah. me, how, how do you tie it all together? There's so many moving parts. No, I'm I'm very lucky in in the office itself. I mean, another reason for staying in this position, I love working in the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs because we all get on so well together. And, you know, there are times when we need a bit more help from someone else. You can't, like you said, you can't always do everything yourself. And so I have plenty of colleagues that I can call upon, including the Dean and the Associate Deans, to ask for assistance. And it could be from them, of course, you know, do you know someone who could speak on this in the field of this, et cetera? And then my other mm-hmm. colleagues, you know, can you help me today with this? Um, you know, do you have anything on that's pressing? Otherwise, can you help me do this? So all throughout the whole of the office, there's a lot of support there. And uh, again, that's what makes the, the job so enjoyable um, and, can, and has given me the impetus to keep going in this sort of work. Wonderful. And now I would say probably there are, thousands of graduate students, uh, past and present, who sing your praises literally every single day uh, due to the outstanding support you have offered them through their degree programs. Have you any messages for current graduate students and alumni who may be listening? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry if I didn't get to meet you personally, because I know, I mean, I've I've met a lot, but I know there's an awful lot that I haven't met over the years that I've been here. So those of you who haven't had an opportunity to meet. Uh, well, all of you, I, sh- I should say, I do wish you all the best if you have finished. And you know, please keep in touch because we'd love to hear what you've managed to go on and do since leaving um, Queens. Those of you who are here right now going through the process, don't forget to reach out. I mean, we're here to help you, uh, whether it's from our office or we can put you in contact with the people, for instance, some of the student affairs departments that can help you both academically, personally, and professionally. I mean, school is all about that. Our our big sort of motto is we want you to succeed. So what can we do to help you succeed? So don't forget to reach out. And I guess the last thing is don't forget to read my newsletter because that first part was really, really important. (laughs) (laughs) Read 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 the the newsletter. newsletter. (laughs) And if you've you've already graduated, Sign up again for it, though. <laughs> but no, we do wish you all success. 
Uh, and if you're here now, please reach out if you need anything. Um, and if you're finished, I'm hope, hoping things are going well for you all. Oh. And now I, I have you here, CD, CJ the DJ. Tell <laughs> us more about GradChat and its inception and evolution. Well, it's in, in inception was back in 2016. Actually, it was 2015, December 2015. I got asked by CFRC, would we like a program on on the, on the radio and to talk about grad studies? And I went, yeah, that is absolutely awesome. Great idea. Love to sort of showcase some of the research that's going on, et cetera. And I said, so we'll have to get a good host for this, you know, um, and I can do sort of the background stuff of helping get students. And then the, question, the answer to that was, so, comment to that was well we thought you could be the host of the show which of course made me laugh because I've never done radio in my life and they had no worries we'll, we'll teach you so, and they did and so I had my training sessions which was um quite enlightening <laughs> I'm, I think I'm still pressing the same buttons because I still got my sheet of paper there's a, a section in the in the CR1 that has moved but I do remember one time something wasn't working for me, and I said to I said to you, Dinah, I can't get, I can't, I'm not hearing anything. What's going wrong? And you said, Well, go through what you do to set up. And I went through this thing, and then you go, Well, why did you press this button? And I said, Because I was told to press that button. And she goes, And you said, That does nothing for you. Why are you <laughs> pressing it? But I can tell you, until that whole block got moved, I still pressed that button because it was on my list of things to do. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's gone, so I can't. So we started in January 2016, first of all, with the, like two students each show, which is very difficult to do that. And I realized, oh, that's too short. I'm going to have to do only one a show. And, you know, we've been doing it ever since. Uh, you know, we have a, we've had a program every week. I must admit, over the years, I sort of changed summer to be more of repeats because it was a little bit difficult to get, there's a lot of people away and I had other things to do and sometimes I was away. But we've had a show since January 2016 every single week and I'm very proud of that. And what's really good about it is that the students are coming and saying, can we practice? And, and the good thing about doing it on CFRC is that we can pre-record and so if we muck things up like we can edit it out so they still look good so their message is getting out but it's also a great training opportunity which I think is actually probably a little bit more at some stage important to them is learning how to speak about their work to people like me um, you know and the people on the radio because it's easy to talk at conferences with people who understand the field but that's only a small percentage of people you're talking to. The most of people you're talking to, of course, are those outside of your field who want to know what you're doing and get excited just as you are, but not in that technical way. Absolutely. Being able to speak uh, across disciplines or outside mm -hmm. of discipline, period, to yep. any listener, including our listeners right now, so they get a good idea of what somebody is doing their research in and why they love doing it. Yes, exactly. And I've loved it. I've learned so much. Admittedly, only little bits of each thing, but it makes me really good in those small conversations. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh, are you aware of blah, blah, blah? <laughs> Sorry. 
you know, you know. I did an interview with a paleolimnologist this morning. And I'm impressed you can actually say that word because I struggle every time when I get when I see that in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, before we close, part of our discussion today has also rested on the idea that you are the recipient of one of the Distinguished Service Awards uh, this year, having been nominated by so many of your peers and colleagues. What were your thoughts when you learned not only had you been nominated, but you, you won this award? Well, I was in Halifax at the time when I got the phone call and I thought they were asking me about something else. And they said, no, we want to let you know that you've received this award. And I went, oh, a little bit quiet at the time. I go, I thought that was only for senior leadership people you know people in high places in the university they go no Claire it's at all levels this is for and I go well you know I'm extremely honored of course to have been nominated let alone sort of be one of the recipients for this year it's a bit humbling really because I know how much you know my successes are only because of the people around me uh, as I mentioned in the in earlier in the interview I couldn't have done what I've done so far without that support around me both within the office and throughout the rest of the the Queen's community so yeah it's a little bit nerve-wracking to be perfectly honest to know that I've been put up there um, and I feel like it is up there I hope that doesn't mean just that they think I'm on my way out like retiring tomorrow <laughs> yeah we're going to give it no, to you, you now have, because you're, you're staying gone. here <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so I am I am extremely honored and I haven't seen uh you know the application yet apparently we get given that uh on the night with um I guess we get a little award thing and uh so I'll be looking forward to, to, to reading that but regardless of that it is it is a great honor and um a little bit humbling <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, as a former graduate student, uh, thank you for all of the work that you have done uh, for graduate students, uh, past and present, uh, bringing all of the programming together and coordinating so many people to help graduate students uh, achieve. Thank you. Uh, thank and you. Uh, you really, you on a personal level, you made a real difference in my life. <laughs> so, I, ah, well, thank you. So, <laughs> thank I you. think you made a difference in a lot of people's lives even if you've never met them. Uh, a lot of people, I think, really appreciate the work you do and hence why you have this Distinguished Service Award. <laughs> and a huge and Thank hearty you. congratulations. A well-deserved. Thank you. I re really appreciate Thank you so much for having me on, on the Thank show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Colette. <laughs> Great. And this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in to Grad Chat Tuesdays at four o'clock. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Grad Chat, Grad Chat. You've just heard segments of our conversations with three Queen's University Distinguished Service Award winners. You can check out the full interviews with each of the three winners on the Campus Beat podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, and podcast.cfrc.ca. And before we close this segment, the Distinguished Service Award ceremony and reception will be held on Friday, November 3rd from 5.30 to 7.30 at the Isabel Bader Centre for the Performing Arts. Tickets are available through the Queen's University Alumni website, and the Isabel will also be 
streaming the event on their website. And now over to Zayden Vergara with the latest in Gale Sports. Good evening, everyone. My name is Zayden Vergara, and it's time for your CFRC Sports Update. On Saturday, October 21st, Queen's Men's Rugby hosted the McMaster Marauders for the final match of the regular season. While away games typically mean a long bus ride and an unfamiliar crowd, that would not be the case for McMaster's Spence Alexander, who is returning back to his hometown of Kingston. I was fortunate enough to have the chance to interview Spence after the game. Here's some highlights from my interview. All right, Spence, uh, good game today. Can you just quickly speak to me, just talk about coming back to the hometown? How, how does it feel to be on Nixon Field? It's great. Um, you know, coming back here, it's where my, I played with my high school. Um, lots of good memories here. Always good coming back in front of family and friends as well, um, as well as some of the lads on Queens. Uh, props to them, they played a great game today. Um, it's always a great day on Nixon, man. Can you speak to just the camaraderie uh, of the team? Of course, you have an entire season to build it. Uh, just speak to the memories that it leaves you with. Yeah, um, I think something like this, some a program like this, um, we become very close with each other, um, both on and off the field. We support each other. Um, and I think that really builds a family um, with people coming in and people leaving. It's always super hard to make changes. Um, but yeah, these guys, these guys are my second family. Can you just, uh, let's say you have, you have a young player coming in, can you just speak to motivating them of, of finding that drive to keep pushing it to play at the, the university level? Yeah, um, I think we have a lot of great examples uh, coming in. We have some guys, um, I mean, not per se varsity selections, but guys who've never played rugby before. Um, with that being said, they see some of the older uh, varsity guys who are well-established in the program and really look up to them. Um, and I think the way to keep that drive is just motivate them, um, help them out in every way you can, and welcome them in. Any family or friends that you just want to give a, a shout-out to for coming out to the game? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd love to give a shout-out to my, uh, my mom and my dad. Um, super happy they could make it. Um, and, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Spence for taking the time to chat. While the McMaster Marauders season has come to an end, your Queen's Gales will continue into playoffs finishing their season in third with a record of 2-4. and four. They'll be playing the Trent Excalibur on October 28th at 2pm on Nixon Field. Don't miss it. But on that note, I've been Zane Vergara and that's all for your CFRC sports coverage. And now it's time for the CFRC weather report brought to you by Environment Canada. Tonight we'll have partly cloudy skies with a 40% chance of showers and a low of 13. On Friday we'll have cloudy skies with a 40% chance of showers and wind becoming southwest from 30 to 50 kilometers an hour in the morning, a high of 19. On Friday evening and night, cloudy periods with a low of 15. On Saturday, we're expecting a mix of sun and cloud with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 16. Cloudy on Saturday night with a low plus 4. And on Sunday, rain with a high plus 8 and a low plus 3 with rain on Sunday night. Thanks so much for tuning into Campus Beat. Please do consider making a donation during our funding drive launching on November 1st. Thank you so much for your support in helping CFRC continue to provide you with the latest in campus and local news. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.